Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Our podcast journey has been a bit of a wild ride, and we are incredibly thankful to all of you for listening, especially those who support our Patreon show. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you very much for your support. But we decided we need a bit of a break over the summer. It's something that happens in Canada for a very, very brief period of time in the year. Personally, I'm going to drink a few beers on the patio, maybe more than a few in one sitting. And I'm trying to avoid getting sunburnt. Again, it's a real problem. You'd think I'd learn lessons, but maybe not. Uh, But we didn't want to stop giving you those engineering failures that you know and love. So today we're sharing some more of our mini failures. These are the last two mini failures out of a total of six that we're sharing with you. And these mini failures come from our environmental disaster series that we did on our Patreon last fall. So far, we've covered the Love Canal, Minamata, Bhopal gas leak, and asbestos. And the last two we're going to share are PFOA contamination and the Sudbury effect. PFOA, also known as the DuPont scandal, has been poisoning living creatures in the Ohio River Basin for decades. One brave lawyer took on a huge corporation in this real-life David and Goliath story. And the city of Sudbury has been undoing a century of damage, little by little. And what went from green and lush to black and barren, back to green again? Sudbury is now said to have the cleanest air of any city in Ontario. So without further ado, here's our mini-failure on PFOA with the Sudbury effect to follow right afterwards. Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our 32nd mini-failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, though, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes or not enough information for a full episode of Failureology. These episodes are also just the failure, no news, and no ads, for now at least. It's like failureology light. This is our last mini-failure for 2020. Two weeks from now will be December 25th, which is crazy that we're here already. Happy holidays to all of you, whatever you're celebrating, including all of the Grinches out there. During this period of time, I personally celebrate not moving from the couch for as long as I possibly can. Where we live, it is usually very cold, it is very snowy, and I'm kind of tired by that point of the year, so I do not want to do anything, I do not want to see any people, so I just hang out on the couch. It is great. I also do a lot of that as well. There's usually a lot of things leading up to Christmas, which is what myself and my family celebrate. But then once that's over, it's couch time until the new year, which is great. It's one of my favorite parts of the holiday season is not interacting with any other human beings. I'm an introvert. I'm an extroverted introvert, but at heart I am an introvert and I do value my alone time. Which I think is the definition of being introverted, of how you how you recharge. I feel introverted people, they figured out how to fake it for the for the nine to five or for the job portion of things. 
or at least a lot of them have. And then once they're done work, it's like, please do not talk to me until tomorrow morning. And if you don't talk to me tomorrow morning, that is fine too. Yes. Uh, yes. But I say I'm an extroverted introvert because I do enjoy socialization just in smaller pieces. You know, I really, I, COVID lockdowns were where the introverts really thrived, I think, as unfortunate as that whole time was. I was actually just thinking, I was actually just thinking that this morning where I was like, oh no, Christmas and holiday time is here. I'm going to have to go hang out with all the people and do all the obligations during the COVID restrictions, I basically had a built-in excuse of, oh, sorry, can't go out, you know, COVID restrictions. And it was, it was pretty great. I, I thoroughly enjoyed some portions of uh, the COVID restrictions, obviously not some other ones, but yeah, this year, yeah, like Nicole mentioned now, there's not really a built-in excuse. You have to go through all the, all the holiday time obligations now. It's not really that bad, but I hear what you're saying. We do also want to say thank you for all of the support you've given us this year. We really appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our Patreon page and becoming a failureologist with us and and nerding out with us every week on these engineering failures. We look forward to bringing you more failures coming up in 2023. We, of course, have a long list of failures. So many. We're trying to get to them all, but I don't think we'll ever run out unfortunately. Fortunately for us, unfortunately for society, I don't think we'll ever run out. Uh, So we're just going to keep plugging away and doing our thing. So thank you for supporting us. On that note, though, if there is a failure you want to see us cover, either as a regular episode or a bonus episode or a two-part episode, please drop it in the comments. We're always on the lookout for more content. The social media contact information, it's at the end of every show. It's on the website. Get in touch with us. One of us will get back to you. This episode, in fact, came as a listener recommendation, and it was a great one at that. I don't know if I can out you, but you know who you are. Thank you for this recommendation. I hadn't, this one wasn't on my radar, and it's a great, it's a great one to talk about, a great failure to talk about, and it's also definitely within theme of environmental disaster. So thank you for mentioning it. This was a, this was really interesting to research and this episode's going to be a fun one. Well, in a really unfortunate way. So on to this week's mini failure. This week's mini failure is about PFOA or C8 contamination, otherwise referred to as the DuPont scandal. In the late 1990s, attorney Robert Billock filed a lawsuit against DuPont alleging chemical waste, specifically perfluorooctanoic acid. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm pretty sure I'm saying it right. You did a really good job. Why, thank you. That was a first time, guys. Sometimes we have to re-record the hard words. That was a first time. He nailed it. Right before this episode, I did listen to a YouTube video where there's 15 people saying perfluorooctanoic acid. So I like to think it was in the back of my mind how to say it. Normally, I have to re-record the word like four times, five times, sometimes seven or eight times. This time, first time, every time. Some words are hard. This is a long word. It's hard. So perfluorooctanoic acid, it's more commonly referred to as PFOA or C8. And PFOA had fouled the property of a cattle rancher in West Virginia by the name of Wilbur Tennant was the the cattle rancher. 
PFOA, it's known as a, a forever chemical, and it's linked to higher incidence of cancer, specifically testicular and kidney cancer, by the International Agency for Research on Cancer, or the IARC, and it is classified as a group 2B carcinogen. So for comparison's sake, lead, chloroform, gasoline, they're also on the group 2B list, so generally not stuff that you should be ingesting. Fun fact, I don't know if any of you know this, but alcoholic beverages and tobacco smoking are group one carcinogens. So they're, that's the worst group to be in. And alcohol and tobacco are both in it, which I did not realize until well into adulthood. But bad. Those are bad things for you. Also among the list of six categories of serious illness are thyroid cancer, preeclampsia, ulcerative colitis, and high cholesterol. PFOA is believed to be in the blood of almost every living creature on the planet, including 99.9% of humans. Blot's cases have been featured in many newspapers, a book, and even a movie. The movie is called Dark Waters. It was released in 2019, starring Mark Ruffalo and Anne Hathaway. Fun fact, it's on Netflix in Canada if anyone wants to watch it. I watched it today just minutes before recording this episode. It was so great. I don't know why it hasn't popped up on my radar before. I'm a big fan of the Aaron Brockovich movie, and this one gave me similar vibes. Nicole, you and I have far different favorite movies because Aaron Brockovich would not even make my top 20, top 50, top 100 list of favorite movies. I think I just really like the David and Goliath story, but I also like the mystery and the whodunit aspect of it and the lawyer twist to it. You know, I grew up watching Law and Order, so I think it just has a lot of different things that I enjoy. So this movie was no different. I really enjoyed it. I would highly recommend it. I also wanted to mention, because I found it in the research that I was doing, and I thought you guys might want to know about it because you're probably podcast fans like me, there's a 30-minute radio program that airs weekly in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and New York. But you can also find those radio episodes on their podcast, and it's called The Allegheny Front, which is Pennsylvania's environmental news podcast. And you can get it, from what I can tell, wherever you get your podcast. We're not affiliated with them at all. I literally just discovered this podcast a few hours ago, around the same time I found the movie, but decided to watch the movie instead. I do have the podcast saved in my library, and I will go check it out later. But like I said, I haven't listened to it yet. From the show notes, it looks like they cover a number of environmental issues throughout Pennsylvania, including the DuPont scandal, but it's not exclusive to the DuPont scandal. So if you're interested in more on this type of thing, check that show out. Let me know what you think. Yeah, and certainly Pennsylvania had a number of Superfund sites that have led to some fairly significant environmental disasters and concerns. So it sounds like it's a really interesting podcast to listen to. Back to our episode on this podcast of the DuPont scandal. So a 2001 class action lawsuit alleges that DuPont's actions caused widespread water contamination in West Virginia and Ohio, leading to high cancer rates and other health problems amongst 80,000 people living nearby. So DuPont, they did settle this lawsuit in 2005 for $235 million US dollars to cover medical monitoring for over 70,000 people. In 2017, after undergoing a merger of Dow Chemical and EI DuPont, Dynamores and Company, 
They are now known as Dow DuPont or commonly shortened to DuPont with spin-offs of Dow Incorporated and Corteva. As of 2017, DuPont had settled over 3,500 lawsuits for almost 700 million US dollars. That said, they deny any wrongdoing. They've also paid 16.5 million US dollars in fines to the Environmental Protection Agency. And the University of Massachusetts publishes a list of toxic 100 air polluters. The 2021 report, based on 2019 data, lists DuPont at number 66. Their associate company, Dow Inc., as number 6. The top polluter on the list is Boeing, with a toxic score almost double the second place corporation. So what did DuPont do that was so bad? Story goes that they manufactured Teflon, a plastic material that until 2015 was made from PFOA. It was developed during the Manhattan Project in the 1940s for military use and later transitioned for commercial use in the early 1960s. PFOA is also used in stain-resistant fabrics and some food wrappers. Exposure to PFOA is linked to several diseases, as Brian has talked about. And leaked internal documents from DuPont themselves allegedly show that they knew about the dangers of PFOA exposure as early as 1961, and that they knew as early as 1984 that the chemical was in the local water supply of the Ohio River by way of dust from the factory chimneys, as well as other waste removal methods that led to this chemical in the water stream. But they didn't tell workers or the surrounding public. So similar to asbestos, the asbestos industry that we talked about in the last episode, DuPont also was well aware of the dangers of their product and was making so much money that they didn't, and they didn't want to lose that, that they hid that information, hid the dangers from the public so that they could continue to profit from this chemical. The Ohio River originates in Pittsburgh at the convergence of the Monagala River and the Allegheny River and flows into the Mississippi River south of St. Louis some 1,500 kilometers later. And as we know from previous discussions on this podcast, the Mississippi River flows all the way south into the Gulf of Mexico. So it is possible that these chemicals are making their way all the way from the Ohio River into the Gulf of Mexico, probably in significantly smaller concentrations because it is so much further down the line, but still possible. Further EPA testing has found PFOA in 12 water systems in 10 counties throughout Ohio, Kentucky, and West Virginia. As per a 2004 study by an industry risk assessor, ChemRisk Inc., which was hired by DuPont, the plant released over 1.7 million pounds of PFOA between 1951 and 2003. So there you have it. PFOA has been poisoning living creatures in the Ohio River Basin for decades. One brave lawyer took on a huge corporation in this real-life David and Goliath story. It will take many more decades to clean up the water supply and undo the damage that has been done, if that is even possible. Thanks for listening to this mini-failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failureology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. And there's links to all of these in the show notes. Bye, everyone. Talk soon and see you next year. 
Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our 33rd mini failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, though, these are still significant failures or just things we find are interesting to talk about, but they either have pretty straightforward causes or not enough information available for a full episode. These episodes are also just the failure, no news, and no ads, for now at least. It's like failureology light. Happy New Year, failureologists. We have made it to 2023. In honor of episode 33, I figured I would take a look and see what interesting things, facts, existed about the number 33. The most interesting one that I found, which may not be the most interesting one to you, was that 33 is the number of innings in the longest professional baseball game ever played, which happened in 1981 between the Rochester Red Wings and the Pawtucket Red Sox in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. It is also the number that's printed on all Rolling Rock beer labels. And for all the non-baseball fans out there, Brian, how many innings does a baseball game normally have? Nine. So 33 is a lot more. I've attended a baseball game that had 16 innings in it, which was actually pretty good. And then I've watched some 20-plus inning games, which are also really good. There was one a few years ago where I thought I was going to miss the baseball game. I came home, and it was the 10th inning. I was like, oh, perfect. At least I can watch some of this game. And then I believe that one was 20-plus uh, innings. It was it was great. It was uh, extra baseball I didn't even think I would get to watch. I'm curious how long 33 innings would take to play. How long would that baseball game have been? Four hours? Eight hours? It's got to be longer than four. So, so typically, nine innings of baseball is about three hours long. So that game would have been just under 11 hours to play. Oh my God. Which is which is a really, really long time to play. I, I haven't looked at the box score for this game, but I'm guessing that there were a lot of positional players that wound up pitching. The game quality once you got later on probably wasn't wasn't that great. But it did set the record for the longest professional baseball game, even though it was between two minor league teams. 33 innings is a really long baseball game. That, that's almost four full baseball games that, that were played. Yeah, that's a lot. Too much for me. And uh, probably one of the worst parts, I don't know, back back in the 1980s, but um, now uh, beer sales stop before the end of the ninth inning. I believe it's the eighth inning, seventh inning or eighth inning beer sales stop. So that's a lot of beer-free baseball that, that people would have had to watch if they, if they stuck around at the end. Great point. Great point. On to this week's mini failure about the Sudbury effect. This is the last in our series about environmental disasters that we've done the last few episodes of mini failures. And we saved it for last because it has a bit of a happy ending. So far, we've talked about the Love Canal, Minamata, Bhopal, asbestos, PFOA or C8 contamination, also known as the DuPont scandal. And now, last episode, we are going to talk about the Sudbury effect, which, like I mentioned, is a bit of a positive story. This is the story of Sudbury's re-greening and how they overcame decades of pollution. So we thought this was a good one to end this series on. So for those of you not familiar with Canadian geography or Northern Ontario geography, Sudbury is a town um, in Northern Ontario. It's about 400 kilometers north of Toronto. It's a fairly industrial town. There's, there's lots of mining activity that goes on in the town um, and smelting activity, which we'll talk about later on in this episode. During the construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway in 1883, 
There were high concentrations of nickel copper ore that were discovered near Sudbury at Murray Mine, which is right on the edge of the Sudbury Basin. And the railway that was being built and continues to operate now allowed mining people in, in the area to exploit these resources and ship them to markets and different ports uh, nationally and internationally within North America and outside of North America. The nickel ore is smelted, which entails adding heat to the ore to extract a base metal, which is the nickel. And then that's used for the production of various things later on down the product life cycle. So some of the things that are that are made out of nickel include Canadian nickels, which are a five cent coin with a beaver on them. These are currently nickel plated from 1922 to 1942. And from 1946 to 1981, nickels were made with 99.9% nickel. In other years, they've been made of copper, steel, silver, zinc, and chrome of various compositions. Which I thought was interesting that nickel isn't actually, the nickel isn't actually made of nickel. I think currently it's nickel plated, which is kind of sad. Although it would be kind of weird if it was made of nickel that was worth more than the five cents that is on the nickel. Which I believe has happened with some other coins where the the value of the of the material the coin was made out of was worth more than the actual value of the coin. I want to say it was silver dollars, but I'm not 100% sure that's what it was. Yeah, I've heard about that as well. So the smelting process to extract the nickel itself blanketed the area of Sudbury in sulfur dioxide and metals, emitting upwards of two and a half million tons per year. And the sulfur dioxide acidified the soil, rain, and lakes, resulting in a complete loss of vegetation, leaving barren rolling hills and blackened rock. Soon, mining replaced lumber as the primary industry, and local trams also facilitated workers commuting so they could live in one place and work in another. Two mining companies were formed in the early 1900s in Sudbury, Inco, now known as Vale Canada Limited, in 1902, and Falcon Bridge, now Glencore Extrada, in 1928, both becoming major employers and two of the world's leading producers of nickel. Mining went through boom-bust cycles over the years, as do most industries, often following wartime demands. Fun fact, Sudbury recovered from the Great Depression faster than almost any other North American city because of the demand for nickel in the 1930s. They actually had more issues keeping up with economic growth than with unemployment or poverty. But Sudbury was ordered into receivership by the Ontario Municipal Board from 1936 to 1941 due to a number of problems they were having. Luckily, fortunes rose again during the Second World War, with the Froude mine accounting for 40% of the nickel use in Allied artillery during the war and again offering nickel to the U.S. during the Cold War stockpile. So along with all that money came air pollution and acid rain, like Nicole mentioned. The pollution and acid rain have caused staining that penetrates up to 75 millimeters or about three inches if you're not on the metric system into the pink gray granite in the area around Sudbury. Also, it acidified 300 lakes nearby. Like That's a lot of lakes that received acid rain and became uninhabitable to plant species and fish species and also impacted flora and fauna around the lakes. In addition to this, Inco built a super stack in 1972, which dispersed sulfuric acid throughout the area. It is the second tallest structure in Canada after the CN Tower. The tallest chimney in the Western Hemisphere and the second tallest freestanding chimney in the world after the GRES-2 power station in Kazakhstan. 
I did not know that a chimney was the second tallest tower in Canada after the CN Tower. That's actually quite, quite remarkable. I think we all know the Calgary Tower is not anywhere near the top of that list. I mean, the Calgary Tower isn't even the tallest building <laughs> in Calgary. Um, I think it's not like the 10th shot. or 12th tallest. Like it's, uh, you can go up to the observation deck on the Calgary Tower and you can look out over all the buildings that are taller than it. When it was built, I believe in 1972, it was, I believe, the tallest structure at that point. But uh, that didn't last very long. And now there's many more buildings that are taller than it, including this chimney. So the Inco stack was decommissioned in July 2020 and reduced emissions by 85% and cut the complex's natural gas consumption in half. The stack was supposed to be demolished by now, but word on the street is the contract has not been awarded yet for that demolition work. Hopefully that happens soon. Also in the 1970s, the municipality, province, INCO, and academics from Laurentian University started a recovery program called the Regreening Effort. This project included spreading lime over charred soil by hand and aircraft to neutralize the acidity. Then they spread seeds for wild grass, trees, and other vegetation. So just to to recap a little bit, we've got acid rain, the granite is being stained black, the lakes are acidified, and so let's just, if those things are all happening to the natural environment, imagine what the air quality is like, what the water quality is like, and what overall quality of life is like for all of the people that are living in this area. It's not great. I remember when acid rain started being in the public conscious, um, I think it was back in the late 80s. Um, it made it sound, at least when I was a kid, I was like, it made it sound like this was going to be the end of the world and this was going to be very detrimental and society would essentially collapse from what we knew it as because the acid rain would basically ruin everything and ruin ecosystems. So I, I feel this regreening effort that we'll talk about in a little bit, you know, it has been very positive overall because I, I don't remember in the last like 10 or 15 years anyone really mentioning acid rain in a in a incredibly negative context or similarly to your comment on a previous episode about your kid brain uh not understanding i believe that was the asbestos episode you were thought that's what people said when they sneezed i thought that acid rain was like battery acid raining down and that if it touched our skin we would be burned and it would destroy everything not because it's a acidic, but because it would burn everything. I thought acid rain was acid in its most extreme form. And as I got older, I realized that there is a, a pH scale, acid being one extreme and base being the other extreme. And acid rain is leaning more on the acid side of that scale. And obviously there's varying degrees if the the acid can be, you know, more concentration, but yeah, I was just thinking back to that. And I was like, oh, that was silly. <laughs> it's not battery acid raining down, Nicole. Anyways, in 1991, the U.S. and Canada signed an air quality agreement known as the Acid Rain Accord to reduce threats to forest and fisheries in the U.S. and Canada. As of 2010, 9.2 million new trees have been planted. In current day Vale, previously Inco is rehabilitating slag heaps surrounding the smelter and planting grass and trees, as well as using biosolids to stabilize and regreen tailing areas. Restoring the ecosystem has taken decades and it is still ongoing. And honestly, at this point, I hope that it's 
ongoing forever. I think this is something that needs at least you're going to eventually get to a maintenance phase, but you still need ongoing attention to make sure that we don't slide back into the environment that we were in previously with all of the pollution. In addition to revitalizing the area, mining companies also sought to reduce and capture their emissions. And their work's not done. Almost a century of mining and smelting have led to millions of tons of reactive mine waste materials that contaminate food and drinking water throughout the area. And so in addition to the re-greening, this requires additional monitoring and management by industry and hopefully some oversight to avoid undoing the revitalization that the community has worked so hard for. So there you have it, the Sudbury effect. Undoing a century of damage little by little and what went from green and lush to black and barren back to green again. Sudbury is now said to have the cleanest air of any city in Ontario. Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For regular episodes, check out Failurology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. There are links to all of these in the show notes. Bye, everyone. Talk soon.